Kia ora, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Log Cabin. Honoured and privileged to have in the studio Jessica Hansel, aka Coco Solid. Kia ora and welcome. Kia ora, thank you for having me. We've just been discussing you the past year. You just completed a thesis or no? No, I was on a Fulbright scholarship. Yeah. And um, I went to the University of Hawaii in Manoa. Um, yeah, I was at the Centre of Pacific Island Studies. And I just did some writing and researching there. So I was working on a um, manuscript for a book, which is a mixture of fiction and um, historical research. Yeah, and wow. it's um, about gentrification in the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah, and how that looks across the South Pacific, but more so just the, just the modern day condition of it, you know, like what it's like, I think for me, what sparked it was me as an Aucklander, just constantly feeling like the sand is moving under my feet. And... Um, the kind of history that we have in the city, especially as Māori and Pacifica people, is constantly, you know, getting uh, reworked or, you know, in worst-case scenarios, just really confiscated and erased, you know? Like, mm -hmm. I have my family on my father's side, which were... Um, my grandparents were migrants from Rarotonga and Samoa. They grew up in Greylin and New Newton and Ponsonby, which was always, you know, big Pacifica hub. Mm. And um, that is obviously the opposite now. And, you know, just talking about the science, I guess, and the dynamics and the, um, yeah, the, the emotional, psychic weight that gentrification carries for a lot of people in their day-to-day -day life, young people, mm. you know, who are constantly, then they're unable to kind of, go home because that sense of home is very much like a transient thing yeah just you know neighborhood psychology how that's so important for a lot of people and that's not always promised these days and so you know i was feeling some kind of way about it based on my own personal stuff it's to me it's like you know colonization 2.0 so i just wanted to kind of write and research about it for my own my own sanity really mm. yeah I just so, wanted to feel grounded and just know why I was feeling the way I was and to have it kind of wrapped up in my creative and my pseudo-academic life was pretty handy yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. does your pseudo-academic life how does that complement your creative life well I just think um you know I I'm quite a cerebral person um I really like to understand the context that I'm in always I always you know want to really feel equipped when I offer my worldview I feel that 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 requires a lot of learning and a lot of researching and a lot of investing in your work outside of the uh, you know creative process the performance the execution there's a lot of you know gestation period digesting um, downloading, uploading secretly that you have to do. Mm. And for me, that takes the form of, you know, a lot of online and bookwormy vibes. But also, you know, I'm just usually in in the field gathering my thoughts, which I think resembles an academic life. But it's not really grounded in that. I don't have necessarily, I don't, I don't hold that stuff in as high as esteem as just 
being in it, living my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, they, but they do cross paths often. Before we turn on the mics, you were talking about how in Hawaii you were meeting with other academics, I guess, talking about Polynesian music. Mm. And you went, well, hang on. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> let me show you some stuff. Like, let me show you some music from back home. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a rewarding thing to be from this side of the world, I've discovered. Right. From my time, you know, abroad over the years, I always end up kind of coming back and really regrouping and looking at the pop cultural canon we have here. And, um, yeah, I don't have cultural cringe that a lot of artists do. I never have, really, because I guess I know my whakapapa, my genealogy in terms of uh, the pop culture and the music and the art mm. and the underground stuff that I think makes this um, country worthwhile on the world stage. That stuff doesn't get um, celebrated as much. That mm. stuff doesn't get institutionally rewarded as much. Mm. But uh, that's where I come from. And so when I was, you know, with my friends who were Pacifica mainly because they were from the Centre of Pacific Island Studies, so we were all in our kind of different little squirrel holes learning and researching our different things and our different interests but all of us were grounded in you know pacific thinking it was a, it was really cool to play them stuff from Aotearoa and, and what we what we do what we, what we quantify as you know cultural value and hip hop and i guess musicology and film, TV, uh, just, it was cool to participate in it from a place of, have you seen this? No, show them. What the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be like, you know, and have you seen this? What the fuck? And it just kind of, that was my role was just to be like, oh, there's these like three white Māori boys, they're called Alien Weaponry, you know, they do te reo Māori heavy metal, let me show you something, right. you know, yeah, and they'd yeah. be like, oh, it just never really ended and for me that's a humbling experience because then I look back at what I'm showing and sharing and go, oh shit, like, we... Our shit's alright. Yeah. We, we punch well above our weight. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... We are on one as well. Like yeah. we are pretty cooked, and we got some wax stuff. Obviously, a glove, and but yeah. it's good for me to curate and control what someone gets exposed to. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, oh yeah, everything's like this. <laughs> yeah, it's all this. It's, it's this, all this. Quality. It's all yeah. quality. I, I guess um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, has always led the way in a lot of things like that, as far as. You know, it's music, it's culture, it's uh, te reo. Just from meetings that I've had with people, like in Hawaii, for instance, Mm -hmm. they really are quite in awe of what happens. I think that in Aotearoa, Māori people, I think we have a responsibility to kind of like shun and decline that rock star indigenous kind of thing that people try to put on us too, because I think that's problematic. That ends up making you feel... You know, like we've done it. We've you've done your work when we have so far to go. Also, it ends up creating this spectrum of what's a successful indigenous person, what's an unsuccessful, you know, indigenous story. And I don't buy into that either. Mm. I think um, for me, I get it in, in a lot of different pockets and a d- different cultural contexts and different creative contexts too, where I'm really grateful to be a Maori and Pacific artist because. Um, I think in Aotearoa we're brought up with a lot of entitlement to be those things. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe, yeah, we do have this kind of humble, toxic modesty as well 
that does like hold us back and stops us from engaging sometimes like normal people <laughs> right, but but right. at the same time when you bring up our cultural identity we don't really flinch you know we really we stand in it because we understand that we are allowed that space and we have a lot of uh, mana and glory in that way and so I think there's a lot there's a lack of apology for taking up space mm. and I I don't know. I think I have two personalities with it. I think I, I have quite a kind of like a uncertain and cautious temperament, you know, around how I'm perceived um, globally. But then when you bring up things like, you know, indigenous visibility and what that looks like in different kind of contexts, I pop off. Right. Because I know, you know, I know who I am and I know what what I'm about and I know it's bigger than me as well so you have to just kind of gulp (laughs) (laughs) gulp and you know have it out because it's important people understand like why you do the things you do and how you why your practice looks the way it does yeah I, I know that I don't always appeal to people when I bring it into that space but that's not my problem because yeah. I know it really does appeal to people who it's relevant to yeah that's right yeah mm. what drew you to hip hop music I've been getting this question a lot lately, you know, and it's really, it's super strange because I feel like it was braided into everything that I did. But, you know, it wasn't the only kind of music that I was drawn to, Mm. wasn't the only art I was drawn to. I think I was just immersed. It was like a tea bag. I was just steeped in it, you know, Mm. and so... I don't think, I don't have that story of arriving at it in the breakthrough moment. I have just like a kind of a weird thing of waking up one day and just going, oh, you know, I guess I I helped create this thing that really um, inspired and influenced me growing up. Um, Having said that, you know, like my, I have all these timelines running alongside my love of hip-hop there's like my life with punk Mm -hmm. there's like my life with comics and there was just my life I guess trying to build stories and um they were all converging and um contaminating each other and so you know I guess it's kind of seen in how I how I roll as well I don't think that I'm a key figure in hip hop, but I know that I am a vital participant in it. You know. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. You um, know, I, I definitely am not like a, a pillar of the of the hip hop community, but I don't think I'm a pillar of anything because I just always feel like I was always, you know, like a spore. I'm just I was always just moving through those. Um, creative arenas and I'm really happy that you know hip-hop was one of them because yeah you know I, lo- I love writing and I lo- and I love to rap and I guess I guess and hip-hop as a writer and a storyteller mm. I guess hip-hop I mean rap music mm. rap is a good vehicle for doing just that yeah. telling stories and and I mean I've been challenged by purists of what quantifies hip-hop in terms of my catalog Shit, since I can remember, right. you know? And I think it's because I was influenced by other things. I was heavily into disco. I was heavily into punk. 
I almost was really kind of resentful about being the only girl in a lot of spaces. I didn't like it. Yeah. I think there's a real pick me psychology with that um, burden. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, yeah, just not into it. I'm still not into it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so um, that that resistance to, um, you know, the one girl on the track or the girl who sings the hook and just my, I guess, my allergy to it, yeah. that that stops you a lot from being able to participate in the dynamics of hip-hop right. a, as it's known. And so I feel like I have this other dimension life with hip-hop. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I still don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can hear your punk influence in your music, mm-hmm. I think. You know, you, I can hear that that attitude and even in the music and just the rawness of it. I think you wear your influences in your in your music, you know. Yeah, it was actually um I learned a lot from uh, my collaborator Robin Hannibal when we did parallel dance ensemble together, of which Ben was the engineer, Kelda. Kelda Ben. And um you know, we he really taught me and held a space for me to be like the thing that you think is wrong with your voice is what makes everyone love it, you know. They love it when you sound like you don't give a shit. And they love it that you don't sing perfectly on key because they are so, you know, in awe that someone just gets up and can hold the tune but, you know, isn't in a place of anxiety with it. It's just like, you know, it's that real, um, it's like that, Latina genre freestyle, you know, from yeah. the early 80s. Yeah, it was right. like, oh boy, I want to tell you how. And it's <laughs> kind of like, you're not there for the, you know, execution. You're there for something else. And um, I learned that through, you know, my punk work. I've learned that through, like, just my um, conversational mahi like this and like lectures and stuff, people are not there for a sense of perfection or authority. They actually are there for something else. I don't I don't know what that is, but, you know, I, I just know when I feel relaxed and secure in myself, I make better work and I don't necessarily fixate on whether that's, um, yeah, whether that's real Starvox or not because I'm motivated by the words I always have been, you mm. know, Mm. I think writing and and the story and the linguistics, the semantics, Mm. that's where I'm happiest. Mm. I feel like I'm eventually moving to a space of writing work for other people. That for me is like... A re- that is so good. <laughs> right to write write words for other people to sing. Yeah, absolutely. Oh like, man, that'd be I, cool. Yeah, I've done some top lining stuff. We had this thing, um, Song Hub, um, and Susan Rogers was Prince's sound engineer. Yes, came yes, to yes. Aotearoa and lots of other incredible women from all around the world. And I um, was working with an LA producer called Wendy Wang, and we were just building. And it was cool because, yeah, I just saw that it was never about the performance for me necessarily. I could do that because I, you know, I would know how I wanted my material to be um, leveraged and performed and executed. But when we were 
top lining and any top lining kind of stuff I've done over the years of like writing in the studio for other people has been so amazing (laughs) because it really speaks to the introvert in me where I'm like can I really like write this audacious thing and y'all you're gonna sing it perfectly (laughs) fantastic you know like I'll write this really like big ass bravado rap and you're gonna sound you know you're not gonna be burdened with this weird ass accent and voice you know you're gonna do it like how it sounds in my head (laughs) and that yeah that's cool and I think um when somebody doesn't have the psychic baggage that you do you know (laughs) or maybe the political responsibilities that you do yes you know I'm so I'm held accountable a lot more than other people um especially (laughs) locally you know and so um if I'm riding with another person or for another person I'm like shit you know if you want to say that like your funeral but I love it (laughs) 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 and it's not to say that you know my stuff is super earnest either you know or um sacred either but it's it's just such a freedom it's like like that Oscar Wilde like saying if you want to find out who someone is you know give them an alter ego like it's so true give them an alter ego yeah, like give like, them a fake name and then they'll really show their true colours. It's like the anonymous person on the internet like trolling you, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, give them give them an avatar and a mask and then you'll see who they really are because when they're held accountable to their identity, like they they put all these other things on it. But um Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting dynamic. That gosh, a lot of people that applies to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I started Coco Solid anyway, because I wanted something to really hide behind, Mm. you know? Or I I wanted a mouthpiece to just, like, say the things I didn't have the nerve to say, but then we ended up swapping places. (laughs) (laughs) Coco, you stand over there, Jessica's stepping up. Yeah, you stand over there and do the rap, and I'll take it from here. Yeah, (laughs) it evens out the longer you do it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I guess, I mean, you've got, what, what did I count, five albums? Oh shit, bro! I, I think I think so. I checked. I don't it. even know. I think it's about five albums, a handful of EPs, since about two thousand four. So you're a veteran, really. Your most recent record was Cokes, mm-hmm. which came out last year. Mm-hmm. Officially a mixtape. Uh, the reason I ask is because I'm just confused. I, I'm still confused, and maybe it's just because I'm an old dog. It's like it, the difference between a mixtape and an album. To me, it's an album. Mm-hmm. I think it was a mixtape to me because I put it out in a pretty cavalier way. And it was like a collection of stuff that had I'd I'd accrued over the years. Right. Um, you know, I hadn't done a solo record since Pacific Rims, of which Ben was also one of the engineers. Kia ora, Ben. Kia ora, Ben. Yeah, I I hadn't done a solo work. I had been in um my my punk band, Bad Energy, they were on Flying Nun, and I had done Paradox Dance Ensemble stuff, and I'd done singles too, like with um, Lorenz Road and Tim Paris and, like, different different producers who I've never met, right. <laughs> who are all awesome. But um, it was kind of like I might just do a little piece here and there, but I was pretty... I was pretty dysmorphic about Coco Solo for a long time, you know. Mm. I was just like, 
it was just I didn't and um, I didn't see what the point was in producing work for the sake of it if I didn't have something specific to say mm. and if the body of work wasn't like really coming together and humming then I have no problem dipping out I never have had a problem dipping out mm. I don't really have a problem dipping back in either aggressively <laughs> you know <laughs> but um yeah I was a bit off the solo radar for a really long time mm. and um I kind of, it got to the point where I had a collection of really cool songs. I had a collection of amazing friends who I really wanted to put on. Um, you know, like Yum God, who's a um, Filipino producer based in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I think his beats are incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, Brown Boy Magic, Queen Kapusi, Hamishi, Big Fat Queen Raro. Queen Kapusi, then that's classy name, <laughs> man. That's, that's up there. Like, I love that. Yeah, Thirsteen, uh, <laughs> Joe Corey, all of the people from Fano Spa, you know. Jismatron. Yeah, Jismatron. Yeah. Massive, you know, influence always on my work. Um, yeah, Queen, Queen Kapusi was like a tongue in cheek, you know, ode to King Kapusi. So she was really happy we did a show the other day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Queen King Kapusi collab. Yes, when, when, that's what I've been saying. When's that going to happen? We need, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, we're planting the flag now. Yeah. There you go. But um, I guess as a mixtape, it's very cohesive though, musically. Like, I mean, I think it's carried through a lot of your music is the, the electro vibe, you know, electro mm. bo- booty bass buzz, you know, eight, kick 808s and sort of, uh, yeah, it's yeah. always had an electronic leaning. Well, I think that's why I'm always like buzzed out when people say, you know, about hip hop, like that is the thing that kind of brought me into performance. If I really think about it, it was probably booty bass. Yeah. And um, like electro, funk, and a you know ghetto tech, yeah. all coming out of like Detroit and Miami. Yeah, I was going to these big booty bass parties when I was super young, um, which Jismatron and um, Chil Peter McDowell, who runs High State Records. I used to go to those parties. Yeah, yeah. I know those ones. Yeah, with Dick Wright Entertainment. Yep, Dick Wright Entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I was right in the middle of it, <laughs> a teenager. Yeah, right. But um. Yeah, and my DJ, DJ Han Baby, was like a Mal- Malaysian, um, yeah, just a booty-based DJ. Yeah. And um, I, those guys were a lot older than me, you know, but I kind of came up under them and I was so influenced by everything they played and everything they produced. And I think I was really annoying for a long time. I'd be like, you know, I'm making this really lo-fi you know these lo-fi tapes at my mum's and um can you give me a beat and they're like you know this girl's so annoying but (laughs) okay and then it just blossomed from there so if I really break it down it was like fruity loops demo and booty bass records and then that kind of I found my feet eventually going into hip-hop but Yeah, I mean, DJ Nasty, who's like a real Detroit legend, um, he's changed his moniker to Detroit's Filthiest. He has a track on Cokes. Right. You know, and that was a massive connect for me. Um, don't know if you heard. Yeah, he sent me a big pack of beats and was just like, I'll see if you like these. And um, I fell in love with that beat. I was just like... Also, I just fell in love with the whole situation that I was finally in a place where 
I feel like, you know, all of these people um, who probably don't know I look up to them, you know, I'm able to work with them and they hold me and that, um, you know, they trust their work with me now. So definitely, like, takes you from imposter syndrome and insecure novice to a place where you're like, no, you can trust me with your music, you know. Mm. I've been doing it for a while and I work hard at creating stuff that I know that my kind of people would enjoy. So, yeah, that was a real highlight, man. I have to say, Violema is a favourite of the Yo, record. Thank I love you. that song. That's a hit in our family. That's a total yeah, hit. Well, yeah, well, I got to play Violema in Violema. <gasps> that was amazing. And I got to play Violema at the State Capitol Building in Hawaii as well. What? At this big kind For of... For li- listeners who don't know, Vailima is in Samoa. <laughs> it's a beer. It's a famous... It's a famous it's a beer. famous ass beer. It's a beautiful region in Samoa. I actually have family who live there as well. Wow. And I got to judge a primary school talent show in Vailima. They invited me to be the international judge. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it was incredible. So, Vilema was just fun, you know? And I'm German Samoan. For those who don't know, like, Germany colonised Samoa before the Samoa was taken by New Zealand and the British and then became independent. And, and the... that was pre-World War Two or pre-First World War? Pre-World War Two. Yes, right, exactly, yeah. yes. So the Germans have a huge influence on uh, Samoa. It's a really interesting dynamic, you mm. know, like my white side, my German side is actually like not white. <laughs> and <laughs> it's actually all, all in Samoa, you know, that's where a lot of my father's side still live. Mm. And um, Vailima is a little bit like, how can I mash up the German Samoan and I was like craft work you know so yeah. we took elements of um, Tour de France and um, just little kind of like you know sounds that I really enjoy about craft work robotic you know a robotic kind of vocal that I'm into playing with and we even did a MIDI digitized version of the Samoan national anthem, you know, do 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 do. If you listen, you can kind of hear that be like a um, Egyptian lover little break. Yeah. And um, all the while, you're rapping about Samoa and Vailima and taste the legends, the, the taste of the islands, this <laughs> beer that everyone loves. And it's also, you know, I hate saying, you know, daughters of the diaspora or whatever, but Samoans who don't live in Samoa, I find we love to drink Vailima. It's know? a connection. It's a connection. It's this really cool way of anchoring you kind of in this real kitsch but warm way. Yeah. You know, I I haven't looked at it too closely, but I just know that when I drink Vailima, I feel... I'm with my cousins, yeah. you know, and I'm with my uncles. and So, yeah, I, I love that song just because it's so playful. And... I love it too. And my only complaint is it should be longer. 
That's really my only Yeah, should have let it ride out for another three minutes. I, I reckon, or like maybe just like, maybe just, I don't know. Who who worked on the beats on that song? That was uh, Jismatron. Jismatron. And Big Fat Raro. Right on. And Thirsteen. We all worked all on it together. On it. Yeah. it was an all-in situation. And uh, as it rides out and you kind of hear that pop, that's like a... Like, you know, beer bottle being popped. So there's all these little nerdy layers on that track if you listen to See, if, 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 if you guys, fellas are listening, can you just like do me a little extended mix? <laughs> I just want an extended mix because like I said, me and my nephew, we get down to that song. Too. <laughs> and there's one other song I want to talk about. It's not off Cokes. It was the, the record before. Mm-hmm. It's Wow. Oh yeah, I love Wow too. Yo, Wow's the shit. Yeah, but we get hassled for that. That should be longer too. That should be longer too. I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's like comes in at like two minutes, or a minute and a half, or some shit. Yeah. I'm like, where's the rest of it, man? <laughs> no, but I, I love the groove, and I was. I think I remember. I remember when it came out. We were like, cause like six months, a year later, um, Beck. You know, Beck, American Beck, mm-hmm. released a record, and he had a song called Wow. And mm. I'll be damned if he didn't bite your shit. Because mm. the start, because his, it was so, <laughs> I mean, it's true. I'm, I'm, Beck, I'm calling you out, man. No, seriously, there's a, he does this wow track, and the style is inspired, same inspiration, same hip-hop, old-school hip-hop vibe. Mm. And I was like, fuck, he bit your style. <laughs> that track was actually... I don't think I've ever thought about this before or said mm-hmm. this before, but mm-hmm. I heard this rusty beat. Rusty, that Scottish producer, I heard this rusty beat um, in the club and I just wrote this rap in my head to it. And then when I was, I actually sent an acapella of me doing this rap to Tim. And he kind of built that beat around it around the acapella yeah and it, of course it sounds nothing like rusty but he was just he had that bass line that boom 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 yeah and he just kind of started it from there and so when we started to adorn the track together we took it to this really cool weird place with pan flutes and but we still kept the funk you know we still like that bass line i think is the is what the whole track hinges on and the rest, I think, are just these, like, funktastic adornments. But I have to really say that Tim recognised that rap's funk potential. Right. Yeah, because I was just like, you know, I'm slippery like slopes that are grappled with by cows. You know, just that <laughs> just that flow, it was weird, because I was writing it to some Scottish techno shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then it came back and you're like, oh, it that It came works. back and I was like, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what makes me, me is like, I think for a lot of producers, I'm where they can really, you know, thrash it out because I don't, I definitely don't judge what they're making because I want to know the genealogy of where they're coming from, like, what made you put this together? What's the story behind it? And if I can get down with the story, then I can, like, um, you know. That fuels you. Yeah, totally, to yeah. kind of contribute to a weirdo vision. And that's the stuff that I really enjoy. Like, I'm trying to always create music from a from a historical point of view, like mm. grab all these kind of different shards and make them new again. I was on a panel uh, recently in LA where they were talking about the future of music and how time and old influences impact us. But 
in actuality I'm like all these things are happening at the same time you know your past your present your future they're all merging at the same time and music is how we yeah it's how we adorn time it's how we make time like create little portals outside of it yeah plant flags in time say significant moments exactly and so that can be comprised of different um moments in time as well Mm. so i have these like that's what i enjoy it's like i really enjoy little mutant creations of a lot of things they're like mutated cells the kind of off cuts and the cut the excluded cousins of what of a sound that once was Mm. yeah Mm. yeah one, oh, well, just random one. If there's any artist you could work with, like, I guess, dead or alive, mm-hmm. who would that be? Uh, I wouldn't be good enough to work with him, but I would like to be privy to his process. Uh, Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire, RIP. Ooh. Yeah, he just jumps into my mind. I, I love Earth, Wind & Fire so much. Yeah, maybe that maybe that's the one for that's me. I've I read his I listened to his eleven hour audio book, so you know I'm for real. Oh. <laughs> eleven <laughs> hours. My boyfriend was like, Are you still listening? you know, weeks going by and I'm like, Oh my god, that track was made in a car? Wow and my boyfriend's like, What the hell's wrong with you? I'm like, It's Maurice White man. <laughs> what an amazing body of work. Oh, yes. Oh man. Mm. Good call. <laughs> I thoroughly approve of that. That's killer. Thank you, Coco Solid. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another edition of Log Cabin, and we'll catch you next time. Kia ora.